Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. The challenge today is to go beyond our limits of understanding the world from our own unique ethnocentric point of view. And we need to do that in order to provide room for every single human being on this earth to be treated with respect and equality and justice if we can possibly contribute to that occurring. And in the United States, with the incredibly oh, overwhelming number of individuals who have been uh, imprisoned and killed and people of color in situations where simply should not be the case, we cannot afford to stand in our own position. And so I'm going to declare my position today. I'm a 65-year-old white woman raised during the 60s and very tuned in to the civil rights of the 60s, and yet tuned in as a white woman. There was an article that was submitted today that I thought was relevant, and it was a beautifully written article, and then I realized yet again it was written by a white woman. (laughs) It said, we are all horrified, but only white people have the luxury of being shocked in regards to what has gone on ultimately as the the straw that broke the camel's back in our society this go around in the horrible death of Mr. George Floyd. And yet I think we need to understand that the protests and the marches going beyond that are maybe exactly what um, Trevor Noah has said or Noah Trevor has said when he says that the contract was broken and is broken each and every time society fails any member of society on the basis of the color of their skin. But I've had to reach out to people that I respect who are not white women and 65 years old so that I can think outside my box. And I'm asking you to step outside your box, whatever box it is you come to this program with, to really reach into your heart to have uh, compassion, to reach into your head, to know that your point of view is limited, and then to reach into your actions to try to create an environment that all of us can have justice and respect. And in order to help me be able to think that through, I've invited Eden Warner. I, no, no, I don't think I've invited him. I begged him <laughs> to, <laughs> to have this dialogue with me. Eden Warner, welcome so much, Mr. Eden Warner, to the program and to the dialogue. And I know I'm putting you on the spot. Do you have something that you think you'd like to bring out to the beginning of our discussion that will particularly at this stage for those of us who want to understand, want to have compassion, I think even more than that, Eden, but we want to do and say the right thing in order to evolve our society out of this pit of uh, horribleness that we've been wrangled through for centuries, and especially during the last three and a half years. So with that introduction, Eden Warner, what's on your mind to get us started on this discussion? Well, hello, Carol, and uh, good afternoon. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for begging me uh, to be on uh, this broadcast, because I, I do think it is timely. I, I'm a 56-year-old 50, black man. I'm married with two children, one sixteen, one eleven, 
Um, I have gone through the normal uh, progressions in corporate America, and I've also done many things as an entrepreneur and continue to do that today. Um, What I'm hoping to at least get across is several things that we can touch on, but you you said it in the beginning about um, compassion. And Mm. I think that we all have different levels of compassion that, that we bring to the table. What I'm hoping folks will understand is that they take a good pause on the compassion hmm. before they get to the doing. Uh, I think, um, especially when something as visceral as what happened to Mr. Floyd, everyone thinks that everyone knows exactly how a black person feels. Now run out and do something about it. And in reality, there's so much nuance. There's a lot of outrage, there's a lot, but there's a lot of personal um, that comes to the, the, the table. Eden, I have to stop you. Your speaker is coming in and out. It's bumping in and out. And I can probably, so let's see if we can connect you better because I didn't want to interrupt you until this has become unable to be heard. I appreciate that. I'm going to move. Thank you. Folks, this is the reality of a live radio, live podcast. How am I now? Well, let's, let's see if that, let's, let's start that. So, now start okay. over again from identifying yourself. <laughs> Let's go okay. from there. Fair enough. Okay. So okay, I'm folks, a 50-year-old black, black man. You're coming um, back in and out again. I am. Okay. Let's see what we can do. So is this, are we on a now. cell phone? Are we on a cell phone? It didn't happen. No, I'm on a computer. On a computer. Okay. Just check to see if the connection into your computer is yeah, all the way in. It all looks It all looks uh, um, it's still doing the same thing. Okay, talk for talk for a little bit. Okay, I'm um, 56 year old black man, married with two children, living in Los Angeles. Um, that I have I've, tra- I've traversed the normal patterns of many of large uh, corporations. I think that'll do it. Things. Let's start it Just over again. It? Yeah, okay. I think you're doing. Sure. I think you're doing okay. So, okay, <laughs> at minute 53:45, here we go. Start over. <laughs> Go for it. Thank you so much, Carol. I, I appreciate that you begged me to come on to this broadcast because um, I think we're at a seminal moment. I'm hoping we're at a seminal moment that um, folks are really going to be able to listen to voices that have been crying out in the darkness for a while. I'm a 56-year-old black man married with two children, 116, 111. And I live in Los Angeles. I have, you know, Traverse normal corporate America. I've started a few companies and, and, and have thrown my, myself into entrepreneur ventures. Um, and I'm at a stage right now where I'm hoping that I, I've lived enough, I've experienced enough that I can give a little bit more context to the discussion that's going on today. One point that I would really love to, to kind of start this with is you mentioned about compassion and that people want to do more. And I really want people to take a beat, take a pause on the compassion piece, because especially when something as visceral as Mr. Floyd's death is broadcast all around the world, people think they understand the rage or the the feelings that people have and they want to run and do. And I think there's a lot to be gained if people pause and truly try to find out how people of color feel when they see it. 
I know that in the initial email that you sent me, and I don't know that I'll reveal everything you typed, which was a wonderful, <laughs> oh my gosh, it was such a powerful communication to me, perhaps if you'll give me permission, I'll read it. But one of the things you fun. said, <laughs> one of the things you said to me was the best thing to do, Carol, is to simply ask, how are you feeling without any assumption one way or another? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that does give so much better room. And I've had such interesting dialogues with people of all different uh, color skins over this and asking that initial question is such a question of respect. Yeah. And so tell me more about compassion before action, because I okay. worry that our compassion stays there in my my comfortable white woman world. Yeah, I think that the, the reason why I wanted to, people to take a pause is what I have typically seen, especially from the majority, from, from white friends and white people I know, is that when they think of compassion, they think of compassion as to what they feel about the situation that they're viewing. Mm-hmm. And they say, I feel bad, I feel this is horrible, and then they move on and they say, I, you know, that I have, that's my compassion for how bad it is. But it's very rare that compassion is based on truly seeking out how the people that are aggrieved are feeling. Mm-hmm. And so there's a big difference between bringing your perspective to the situation and saying I have compassion for it and then moving on and, and having a discussion with people that actually are feeling it in a more uh, – real sense and mm-hmm. knowing what it feels like. And, and I, I like to, um, in, in a broader sense, say that we, we use the word un- unity a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Typically, mm-hmm. the way we use unity is to get rid of the the, the fringes. You don't want the mm-hmm. fringes of society because they take away from the unity of the society. And yeah. I think we would gain a lot more value if you stop looking at unity that way and look at it more as the unity as you think of the unity of body, you don't think of one piece of an extremity of being something you can get rid of. If hmm. that one extremity hurts, you want the whole body hurts with it. Hmm. And I think that is the way we should be looking at unity. Hmm. And that's why the pause needs to happen. You need to understand those who are hurting exactly why are they hurting mm-hmm. before you move to the do. So um, I think that this word fringe is kind of a trap here, Mr. Warner. <laughs> I think that <laughs> because I don't think it's fair to call anybody of color on the fringe, nor whites on the fringe. We are in the same society and hopefully we are evolving it. Well, it doesn't look like it much during the last three and a half years. But so why the word fringe? What, what do you want me to grasp from that that I'm not understanding? I use that word very purposefully because typically when people use the word unity, they use it as a way to disenfranchise anyone they consider the fringe. Mm. That they feel that the person who is doing something different than what the whole wants, to put it a better way, (laughs) is fringe and they need to somehow be brought into line or cast out in the sense of unity. And that's why I use that word. I 100% agree with you that no one is fringe, but fringe and unity too often go hand in hand in the way we do. So it's just a, it, it is an it's an insensitive word mm-hmm. when it when an individual feels like they're not part of that unity, and when right. an individual feels. I had a friend last night send me 
uh, a text that I'm going to go to for a moment that included an, a, a startling uh, YouTube that I had seen before about this woman, Jane Elliott, who tries to teach people how easy it is to teach individuals to get them immersed in racism and to get people feeling lesser than for no different reason than the color of their eyes. It is a riveting YouTube, and I'll put the connection on the front of this program. One of the individuals who was African-American in this experience, which was really appalling, uh, said very clearly in the discussion part of it, that by ignoring that there actually is racism or trying to say there's no such thing, it was actually going to perpetuate the problem. And we weren't going to be able to approach this if any of us were to say, oh, no, there's not a real problem. Come on now. You know, it's like we're all part of this, aren't we? We're all part of the collective. There's justice, et cetera. But the very nature of denying that there's a difference in the way people are treated mm-hmm. in our country is going to perpetuate the problem. So is that akin to what you're saying? If it is, how? And if it isn't, how do we leap from that experience forward? Well, I, I think it's different. I certainly agree with that statement. The statement is 100% correct that we're, we're, if we don't acknowledge that it exists, we are never going to change. It's going to continue the way we're going. But mm-hmm. my my issue is more about a still coming at it from the compassion side, which is if you don't, if, if parts of the, of the whole are hurting and you don't hurt, something is wrong. Ah. That, that's the disconnect. It, it can't be, oh, those poor people over there hurting. Because if you, as soon as you do that, then you just want them to, what, what is the number one thing you want? Is them to get better. Just, yeah. just fix it real quick. Could you take care of that real quick? And then you can come back to the body. Hmm. But if you look at it as hmm. they're hurt, I feel. Now you're like, oh, okay. I feel this too. I want to get better too, but I don't, I'm not leaving it up to them to get better. I'm getting better hmm. on my own. I'm sorry. Hold on one quick second. Sure, you have just to- st- <laughs> we step right into the reality of a, a family. <laughs> I'm very sorry. This it's is the okay. beauty of our lives these days. I don't have an office. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I loved your straightforwardness. You know, and I do want to uh, d- d- describe uh, that you, the things you said in your email to me about your family and protection for that. Can we, mm-hmm. in this moment of having visited your family for this moment, yes. actually move this way into your living room and into mine? in terms of how the protests and the catalyst of, of Mr. George Floyd's murder moves right into your living room. Mm-hmm. Do you mind? Well, not a problem. I certainly can um, give you multiple pieces of it. I mean, there's five of us living in this house, myself, my wife, my two kids, and I also have my mother. Uh, okay. Who's living and we all have our different ways that we're sampling and touching on this. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 56 years old, born in the United States and spent my entire life here. My wife is, I won't say her age, but it's close to mine. And <laughs> she was born in Trinidad and she mm-hmm. didn't come to the United States until she married me. Mm-hmm. So, and we've been married for 11 years. Um, 
So she has a different perspective. I have my perspective. And then of course there's our kids. And then my mom is, she's, she's almost 90 years old. So she's, she's not necessarily in the mm-hmm. same mental state that she wasn't before, but she still has a life she's lived. And that's affected mm-hmm. the way she looks at this. I mm-hmm. looked at the video for the first time in its, in its totality. Oh, oh morning. my gosh. Because oh I, I, I felt really torn about oh, looking yeah. at it. Yeah. But when I finally looked at it, what I expected to feel most, that's what I mean about the compassion piece, what I expected to feel most was rage, mm. but I just felt pain. Mm-hmm. I just felt pain. I wept to see a man mm. 56 years old who's mm-hmm. obviously experiencing death. He's seeking yes. death. He's calling for his mother. He's, he's reaching out to other people that he loves. He knows he's dying. Mm-hmm. The combination of that juxtaposition, and you put a juxtaposition around the officers who seem completely deaf, not only to him, but to the mm-hmm. people around who are screaming yeah. out what is obvious to anyone who's paying attention. Oh, yes. The combination of both of those things of the people being invisible, the people standing on the sidewalk are invisible, the person mm-hmm. who's dying is invisible. Mm-hmm. That it, it just was more than I expected. It, it, oh, it, was yeah. really painful. Mm-hmm. it was painful. So in the midst of that, I'm dealing with the conversations I have with my son and I've been having with my son since he was 10 years old, which is you have to get home safely. We talk about justice and we talk about rights and we talk about what's fair. But when you're out there and you encounter law enforcement, your number one priority is getting home safely. Yeah. And that conversation unfortunately, it gets marked over time by the deaths that happen. Yes. And, um, oh, my gosh. Mr. Floyd is just the latest one. The, the, the thing for my son is he gets to see it bold and clear this time, what so, I'm talking about. That there's no, he can't look at that and go, oh, but, yeah, he was doing this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, but he was doing that. He looks at mm-hmm. it and goes, that's just unfair. And I go, yes, mm-hmm. that's my point. Mm-hmm. Fairness is not what gets you home. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever you have to do to get home is your focus. Mm-hmm. And so he and I have the most conversations and have around these types of issues. Mm-hmm. And can I ask if he's wanting to go join the protest marches? He has not said that. Um, but uh, that's a tough one for me. I'd say. So I, it's been a tough one for me because I I always try to stay the perspective of um, I want him to be out there connected, civilly civilly engaged, but I fear for him. Yeah, I fear for him. So um, the, the discussions with my daughter right now are not as deep, but I recognize there's things there that we need to cover because she never wants to look at any piece of the video when it's on the news. She's been. She, she hasn't. She's normally very open about these kind of things, but she didn't. She doesn't say it. She just leaves the room. And um, so how, all how of old them, is she? He's eleven. Eleven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. What so were you going to say? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. I was going to say all levels of our family have their own reactions, and and um, it's hard to to process it all 
within our family and while I'm processing my own issues, but we do what we do. But one point I want to clearly make, and I don't know if I make it now or you make it later, you can let me know, and that's about the hero worship and oh, how that adds, mm-hmm. and that, that adds difficulty as a society dealing with this problem. Uh, tie, tie this in now, because this is where it confuses me. But yet, can I just uh, put a point of contrast with your family and add in also, if you'll permit me, your description of your, mo- your mom's reaction uh, that mm-hmm. you, you wrote to me. Um, I'm going to let you ponder that for a moment because <laughs> I want okay. to respect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always like to give everybody a, <laughs> a moment to think about my question before I dive in. So I'll give you a little bit of my background is that one of my friends said, um, I warrant to say, Carol, that you have never told your children that not to call the police when they're in danger. Mm-hmm. I thought about that and I thought, uh, boy, there's been a number of situations where I've relied on the police to save my life and to save right. my children's life. And I, and I've, uh, schooled my, my white children, you know, to, uh, know how to call on that. But I do have to also say that I've had that conversation with my children that uh, not every human being is on your side, even if you're in the right. And they've had to learn how to be warriors within the context of their own uh, complications and dilemmas. And we've had our share. And um, so I, I really had to take to thought, have I ever told my white boys don't trust a policeman? Actually, yes. But have I ever had to do that because they were going to be just incidentally pulled off the street because of the color of their skin or that right. they, 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 they were jogging in a park and asked, to, asked a woman to put her dog on a leash or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's like, no, no, and no. So the, it, it, my experience is not yours. And right. I think that is so important for everybody to, really come to terms with that the color of our skin is really creating very different experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you want to leap off of that idea for a moment? Well, I will leap off of it first by saying um, the conversations I have, especially with my children would be a lot, diff- lot harder, quite frankly, if we didn't live already within the context of, unfortunately, we don't look at, Police as our someone there to only to protect us. Because if we did look at it that way, or we looked at them even further as heroes, when these moments happen, the conversations would be so difficult. I mean, it would yeah. be it, it, it would be difficult no matter what. But it'd be extremely difficult. They, those kinds of conversations are difficult now for white families who have children looking at me and saying, this is wrong, mommy. This yeah. is wrong, yeah. dad. This is a police officer. I know that it's hard for them to reconcile that. Imagine how it would be for a black child if they were in the same mode of hero worship of a police officer and now have to watch them killing a black man. It would be so difficult. So Gosh. it's already has been laid over years that the police, you respect the police and so forth, you don't look as someone who's coming to save you. And mm-hmm. that's key. It's key for us, and unfortunately, it's, it's our reality. Um, I'll give you a little story. 
Okay, if you'll just plug in your connection. Eden, plug in your connection to your computer again. It's gotten loose. Uh, sorry. Let's see if I can cut it all of this out. Doing it? I, haven't, I haven't changed anything, but is it still doing it? That's much better. I don't know what you just did. Great. Go for okay. it. Okay. So um, I, I'm going to share a little story. This is maybe as time goes by, it's maybe 20 years ago now. And my mom used to live on the, it's more than that. So my mom was in New Jersey and I was living out here in California. And I went back for this meeting and I had a rental car. And, um, while I was visiting with my mother, she stopped, she was ill. And I had to rush her to hospital. Uh, so I emergency room. Eden, it's, it's, stop, stop. And, Eden, it's, um, ha- Eden, it's happening again. So, because uh, yeah. it's every other word. I'm so sorry because this is such an important okay. story. All right. Let me okay, try tra- something else. Tra- tra- Hold on, hold on. Maybe, I'm going to try okay. <laughs> if your microphone is somehow flopping around or moving, or um, if it's just a kind of a loose uh, microphone as opposed to one standing still or connection to it, and I guess this means that we can like edit all sorts of things out of this. <laughs> okay, testing one, two, three. I can't hear you at all. Just letting you know. So interesting things are happening over there. (laughs) Yeah. No worries. This is real life. I'm gonna um, mute uh, Eden Warner while he, Mr. Eden Warner, while he is in the process of getting himself going and. You know, I, I, I read this article today I wanted to really be clued into everybody listening called The Perfect Storm of Civil Unrest Following George Floyd's Death, Unique, Effective. And I think that the perfect storm is that African-Americans, along with the Latino X, uh, Latin X, sorry, and um, uh, the Asian community, such as the Filipino community, that they have taken a real hit. Uh, of COVID-19 because they're in the service and essential aspects of our society and a much greater representation than um, the other, the other uh, skin colors, let's just call it that way, since that's what we're going on. And as a consequence, their income, there's more unemployment, uh, their income is hugely compromised and their safety and health hugely compromised, relatively speaking. And then they have the unfairness, the injustice. That's not new. I hate to say it, folks. But yet a continuation of things that have been invisible or poo-pooed. I mean, even the ridiculousness of this being considered something that is from another sort of terrorist cell that's trying to be sold from Donald Trump is ridiculous as opposed to recognizing, yes, this is the racial tensions that we must evolve from, not in disregard to the differences, but into an accentuation of humanity uh, and every element of humanity, every diversity of humanity, having a right for justice and equality and respect. Um, It is 
it is not okay for a, for Donald Trump. I won't even call him the P word. Donald Trump to say we just need more harshness and cruelty to wrangle in the people who are protesting, as opposed to clarity, understanding, compassion, rectification, correction, clarity, and being able to say. It is not okay for this injustice to be taking place that now has once again been put into all of our videos, all of our faces, all of our hearts, because it's not okay. So even though this is the perfect storm, so to speak, it is time. It is like time to evolve. Uh, At least that's my point of view as a 65-year-old white woman. But let's get back to Eden Warner. Let's find out. The, the next leg of his uh, story that he was about to tell us about his mother. Hello, Eden Warner, are you back again? I am back, I hope. How is this going? <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for okay. doing the Johnny on the spot type of uh, jerry-rigging <laughs> around there. You know, of even course. those phrases, Johnny and jerry-rigging, are actually mm-hmm. based in rach- racial language. Is It's just like yep. embedded and uh, the word Jimmy embedded in our racial consciousness is I think we need to wake up to these sorts of things uh, as in the white culture, because I'm sure it hits you as a, a microaggression that us whites who really do care are not even aware of it being a microaggression. But we'll get onto that a little bit more. Tell me the story that you were about to engage in with your mother. Yeah, so I was um, sharing a story that talked about the interactions with, with law enforcement. So um, I, I was back in New Jersey for a business trip, and my mother took ill. I took to the emergency room, and uh-huh. she, we stayed there for several hours. When we finally about three in the morning, so we're driving. We stop a light. A police officer pulls up next to us in the light. Uh-huh. Um, but sitting near the light, he turns the key. I start to pull away. He slows down, and so he slows down. I know what's going to happen. Oh dear! He slows down. He behind me and puts his lights on mm. and pulls us over. So he pulls us over, and in in the same vein of what I try to tell my son, my mother is incensed because she knows what's going on. Yeah. But I want to get my mother just be taking her home from the hospital. So I yeah. I want. He walks up and um, and he says, "Well, you know, you know why we stopped you?" I go, "Absolutely no, I do not know, officer." And he says, "Well, because there's been a lot of cars being stolen in the area." <laughs> so wow. Second, can you show me your registration on the car? I said, "Well, it's a rental car," and I show. And, and all the while, my mother's livid, and I'm trying to get her to calm down so we can mm. get out and get home. Yeah. And. The reason I tell this story is because, I, you know, as a black man traveling this world as a black man, there is a weight I carry whenever I see police officers. I never see a police yep. officer and think of that person as someone that I can trust. I'll be honest. Oh, boy. With you. Yes. And I do mean never um, yes. until, I know, until I know them. I assume right away that I have to be wary of them. But yeah. I feel less concerned of that if I have something, someone like my mother with me or my children with me, because then yeah. I think what get me is more human. I'll mm-hmm. be very honest with you, because I, I, 
70-year-old mother with me. There's no way they're going to treat me the same way as if I was driving by myself with a cat mm-hmm. turned backwards or whatever else, right? I'm dressed, mm-hmm. dressed well, and I have my 70-year-old mother with me. That won't be the same. And in this case, none of that veneer helped. Oh, boy. Because it wasn't, he didn't pull up from behind. He got next to me on the side, on the passenger side. So he looked through my mother <laughs> to see me driving the car, backed up and pulled us over. Wow. And that's the backdrop that we, black Americans, and especially male black Americans, live every day. Oh, and boy. So when, when we, when, when, what, there's nothing that probably bothers a black man more than when he's talking to a white colleague and they say, well, you guys are just, it's overblown or oh. you guys are too sensitive. And, and you try to get them to understand you just don't get it. You don't right. get what it feels like. And because you don't get what it feels like, you don't understand that when Floyd happens, you go, your, the emotions you feel are not just the man that's dying there. There's emotions of freedom you feel, of by God, finally they'll see it. Finally, after all these times, all the ways they make excuses for Rodney King and for Eric Gardner and every other, Michael Brown and every one of them, there's some way that you can make it into, it really wasn't the police officers. And you look at this one and you go, there's no way they can do it this time. So at the same time, you're feeling like despair. You're feeling a little bit of, God, help me, elation that this place can see what it looks like. And now, then your next emotion is, but guess what? They still might not do anything. If they don't do anything now, what what do you have left? And I am scared, actually, that they're not going to do anything. It took the longest time for them to put murder charges. Right. And it wasn't first degree. It was third degree. What? Mm-hmm. And yeah. murder charges against the three cops that stood and watched in the public mm-hmm. view and knowing they were yeah. being filmed. And right. it's like, you know, what? It's mm-hmm. like unbelievable there would have been a pause at all, at a pause at all, and um, and then, and yet, as soon as I said believable, I'm kind of aware again of my whiteness because for you, it probably is believable. Yes, and very much far. So. Tell me. Well, I, I, we've watched it over and over again. It's played out over and over again, and so there is. We once thought that once there was video proof to what's been going on for centuries, uh-huh. that things would change. And what, what you have to recognize is the human beings are, we're amazing creatures. <laughs> and so white people are no different in terms of the way they, they deal with these things. When things don't fit the world that we have in our mind, we are so gifted at changing what we see. I'll say it again. I- when- yeah. When things so fit the world that we have in our mind, we are so gifted at changing the things that we observe that are factual to fit the world that we see. Oh, and if, oh. if you're told, if you're told over and over and over again, 
police officers, our first responders, they're heroes, they're heroes, they're heroes, they're heroes, they're heroes. So, you know, they, there's your local officer, he's a hero. There's Officer Jones, he's a hero, hero, hero. When they are doing something that's non-heroic, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. And so, so because it doesn't fit, it must not exist. Rather, I would love it if we could stop talking about heroes and talk about heroic acts. So a person can be flawed in many ways and do a heroic act. Talk about the act. Don't talk of, say that the person's a hero because you don't know everything about the person. And God forbid you extrapolate to a further thing and say a whole profession is heroic. It, does, it defies logic to even teach kids that, but we do it all the time. I'm getting it now. I'm understanding what you're saying. In other words, looking at the whole profession as heroes or even a gender as heroes or yes. even a skin color as a hero mm-hmm. is a, is a, it builds into our subconscious a, 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 a perception, a belief, an iconic thing we hold on to so that when that icon is challenged inside of our template, we can't really mm-hmm. believe that our template right. doesn't hold true. Right. Um, oh, got it. So we modify what we've actually seen. Mm. We turn that into the thing that's incorrect, not our assumptions that created our template. But you know, I'm I'm still concerned that this is going to happen with Mr. Floyd's situation oh, because, I, you know, yeah. justifying that they were somehow worked in a bar together as bouncers, somehow mm-hmm. stories about, uh, you know, counterfeit money being passed. I mean, I'm listening to these little subtle ways of, oh, wait a minute, and I'm going, oh, this is scary. There is a right. buildup of information that's going to disregard the reality that that was murder first degree and purposeful. And then the the second thing that comes to my mind is that these protests and these marches, I am listening to people and they're white people terrified about the protesters and the marchers being so violent and being so destructive. And now the focus is on that. And I'm listening to helicopters, police helicopters around my neighborhood. They're focusing mm-hmm. on that aspect of it. And they're terrified that this is going to turn people to run toward the protection of the horribleness of Trump and reelect him because he's going to rescue us from violators and violence and looters. I'm listening to white people say this and focus on that. I'm going, wait a minute. Do you realize that these marches have to recalibrate us as a society? They have Mm -hmm. to wake us up in our consciousness. We're being sidetracked. Well, that was my, my pulpit. What's yours on that topic? (laughs) Well, it's, it, it, it has been, and I, as soon as protests started, I said, I know where this is going to go. And, um, and I kind of joke about this because um, this, the news loves three things, especially here in L.A. They love looting, they love fires, and mm. they love police chases. Those three things the news loves. Yeah. So when you have protests that have a car burning, or have people looting a store, you are guaranteed those will be replayed all day long. And the only thing that will let you know it's not live is because it's nighttime now and it's showing you something during the day. Hmm. And I at the beginning of the day yesterday, and sure enough, we as a family actually almost sat around chuckling 
as we watched it develop. Because now wow. it's at night, and they keep showing on the right on a split screen earlier today, and they keep showing the looters over and over and over again from the same store. And talk about yeah. widespread looting, but they keep showing the same store over and yeah. over and over and over and over again. And then they switch to this police car that's burned, and they keep showing that same car. And it's a, a fire is all over the place, and they show that same car over and over and over and over and over again. And it feeds this fear by the general yeah. public of how yeah. horrible it is. And in, in this, they're coming for you kind of mentality. Yeah. Even when, you know, on the grand scheme of things, I'm not saying that this is great, but for, I've actually heard people saying this is like the L.A. riots of, of 1992. And I'm going, you must be kidding. The, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, the scale is nothing like that. Mm-hmm. But the news is on 24-7. They... They preempt all of their shows to show, oh, and what else are you going to show? You're not going to show peaceful protesters over and over and over again. That's boring. <laughs> that doesn't, that's not news. Mm-hmm. News is looters and fires. They don't have the police chase here, but if they get a police chase, they'll, I'll guarantee you they'll, they'll show that over and over too. Mm-hmm. So that's where the sensationalism is, and it robs going on because they yeah. are tons of protests. And most of the protests are, it's not like 92. 92 was a riot. The main thing that was going on was, was the, the physical acts of the riot. It wasn't protesting. This is mainly protesting with the fringe, back to that word, being the ones that are actually looting. But most people out there are protesting, but they're covering it the exact same way they covered the L.A. riot where the only thing is looting and burning. Hmm. Not, and they show the protesters for maybe two or four, four, four or five minutes, and then they'll spend the next 55 minutes in an hour talking about the things they love to show. Oh, boy. That, that is why you get nervous and you, get, you should be worried about what really happens here. The combination of that, the combination of what we have in the White House, all of these things of pressures that do not make you feel comfortable that the prop that justice will even happen in this so obvious case. I think that we have seen every day uh, the White House. I don't even call it the White House. It's being soiled. <laughs> that mm-hmm. that Donald Trump every day lies, covers up, and gets away with it. And you want yes, to say does. he's getting away with this again and again and again. And you begin to say it like fifty times a day. So. Uh, you know, it's, it's like I can actually see that we we have can't we have to be aware we can't let our society get away with this and mm-hmm. uh, our consciousness. Well, if we come to the point here where we're going to painfully have to end mm-hmm. our program, and yes. I I I know there's more to I, there's three things that I want to do. One, what do I do? What what do white women do who care what do white men do who care uh how how do we stay awake how do we fight that iconic role inside of us that says oh okay no big deal Uh, how do we stay awake what do we do with being awake and um, how do we greet um, people Mm -hmm. of color with respect Um, i know for me that um, when 
Donald Trump got elected, I would walk into a store and I was treated differently by my African-American fellow men and women because I was white and I was suddenly under the suspicions of all the white supremacy going on. And I felt complete understanding that they would worry about me in that regard. But I Mm -hmm. also felt completely like, well, then what do I do here? Because um, I understand and yet I don't want to be connected to that. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk to me about any of that. Well, there are a few things. So the, let me talk about the one that's the most pressing in terms of this okay. particular case. And because people need to understand there is a big difference between racism that's happening generally and racism, racism under the color of the law. And the power of that in terms of what goes on in our society the Christopher Commission back in 92 or 93, I guess, is when they finally were together. Their report was really clear. It, 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 they went into it thinking they were going to find systematic problems throughout all of LAPD that needed, to, needed a ton of training or gutting or whatever else to fix. And what they found out was that there was this, this tail of officers that had this huge amount of complaints without any repercussions. And in fact, they were mm-hmm. getting good reviews, even mm-hmm. though they had 15 complaints of uh, excessive force and 10 complaints and 20 in one case, and they were still getting good reviews. And so the Christopher Commission came out with something very boring, right? Their boring result was if the captains and the, the supervisors do their job and fire these people, who are a, a cancer within the police force, you would get a police force that's much more in line with serving the people. That was a simple oh, result. So straightforward, isn't it? And right? very, very straightforward. Now, of yeah. course, no one loves that because that's not as controversial as you like. But, you know, it's not very controversial to say that the supervisors just should do their job. But, mm-hmm. but that was the reality. So now we fast forward to now. Right, 17 years later, or 27 years mm-hmm. later, I mean, 27 years later, and this officer, what does he have? What, 16 excessive yes. use? Yep. So he's exactly what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. There's an underlying, there's an undergirding of, of racism that's there no matter what. But in mm-hmm. terms of it rearing its ugly head where black men are being killed and injured, it, that happens because of those types of officers staying on the force. Yep. And until all police forces, because it can't be just one here and one there, sure. all of the side that we will not tolerate police officers that have their own acts to grind and do not see themselves as serving the public, but want to put their boot on the neck of the public, as long as, until they all do that, then this problem continues to happen. Yeah. Because even if, say, Minneapolis changed that way, someone like this officer... If he didn't do this, if he got fired, he'd just go to the suburbs and get hired in the suburbs. That's right. Unless everyone is under the same thing that, you know, you get past five complaints, something is going on here. And if we get another one, you're out. You talk about three strikes, how you have 16 strikes. Yeah. And so that is, that is the most systematic thing that has to change. And if I, I run into any white person, they ask me, what can I do? I say, get that change. Whatever you need to do to make it clear to police forces everywhere, wherever you are, that people who have excessive complaints 
of excessive force should not be on, not discipline, should not be on the force. That is the most fundamental change that will make it less likely that a black man is dying on the street because of a police officer. Just so clearly said. However, you you must have been completely incensed by the Donald Trump that said, oh, you guys are being wimps. You need to get out there and you need to be harsh. You must be totally incensed by the fact Mm -hmm. that he completely decommissioned and executively ruled against all of Obama's attempts to mm-hmm. rectify this very thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you must feel so much like we have not just taken a step backward, but we have slid down into a pit that's just mm-hmm. horrifyingly awful. Care to well, react? I, well, Donald Trump, I don't even want to tell you what I said the night that he was elected. And, and <laughs> Because, but but I but the number one thing that I say when people get into conversation about Donald Trump is I say Donald Trump is a reflection of a too significant a piece of the United States. Yes. And it Donald Trump is not the problem because he is who he was and who he always will be. I grew up in the Newark, New Jersey area, and I remember talking mm. to one, and they said exactly the right thing. When I was mm. growing up, there's nothing. I do mean nothing you could have ever heard that Donald Trump did that you wouldn't believe, oh, yeah, I could see him doing that. If someone mm-hmm. said Donald Trump had five people killed and, and, and thrown into the Hudson River, you'd go, ah, I could see him doing that. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Donald Trump is who he is. The, mm-hmm. more, the more salient question is, who is this large block of Americans that think that this is okay? Mm-hmm. And I, I will, for a second, take a broader step of what's going on, because I heard someone say this, and I think it's exactly true. The United States is a massive experiment. Hmm. There's no other country in the world that hmm. has, has transitioned to a truly multicultural society. The United States' power has come from being multicultural, even though it denies it all the time, hmm. and having a power structure that laid on top of it that wasn't. But that power structure is eroding. And the reason why those people can grab onto a Trump, and that's why he knows he has them, is because they think on the other side of multiculturalism, even though they would never use that term, is a world where they are being treated the way they are treating people of color. They can't imagine being on that other side and not being under the boot of power. And so they're holding tight the way it is. And so you, that, oh, you, you're thinking that uh, the, the, the people who have put Trump in office are terrified of becoming the fringe minority? Oh, yes. I, I, no. I, I am positive. Trump does not. I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. Trump doesn't happen without Obama. Yeah. Obama put in... It was the personification of all of their fears. Mm-hmm. And so it was natural that that group, now that group was not large enough to elect Trump. You had to have another set of dynamics of people not voting and everything else for Trump to get elected. But that group, why they are so much in, in, enamored with him is because they, he plays on all the fears that Obama created in them. Not because of something he did, but because of who he is. Yeah. He, he's a personification 
of that multicultural society on the other side. And so that's, that's the number one thing. The other quick thing I would say is that when I, when I talk about what white people should do, and I think of what other things that, that white people should do is, you know, call it out when you see it. Mm. I know for a fact that white people all the time see racism when it happens. Mm. And if you are a person of conscience and see it, because there are white people who won't even notice it at all. But if mm. you are who sees it, point it out. Point it out. Don't let it have to be the black person in the room to hear it mm-hmm. and then point it out. If it's mm-hmm. only white people at the table, point it out so mm-hmm. that people become more sensitive to what they just uh, casually dismiss as, not a, as a given or something that's mm-hmm. not a big deal. And mm-hmm. that is, those are the important lessons. And then I have one other one, and that is, and I got this from a 20-something-year-old black girl who graduated from the school my kids are in, and that mm-hmm. shouldn't just be the job of black parents to tell their kids to have to talk with their kids about staying alive out there. Mm -hmm. White parents should be telling their white kids about the talk that black parents are having with their kids. Mm -hmm. That's what informs them. They'll sit and they'll play and everything else, and they're wonderful. They're kids, right? They're wonderful. But they don't know that experience because most likely the black kid is not telling them. But if their parents was tell- were telling them, I just want to let you know, I don't have to have this conversation with you because we are white. But your friend, your friend's parents have to have this conversation with them just to survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why well, I, I wish I had had that consciousness when I was raising my kids and um, – I'm going to have that conversation with them sometime today, <laughs> even though they're, they're yeah. holding on their own. I mm-hmm. think that it's important that we all just really wake up to this and, and have it. I, I think that we don't want anybody to be on the fringes and we don't want anybody to uh, be disrespected. We want justice to prevail and it's all up for grabs now, folks. Yeah. We're not we're not only just thinking outside the box these days, we are living outside of a box that really doesn't contain society in its wholeness. And I have one more sixty seconds. Can I read that email that you sent me? Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, you sure? Okay, here we go. I I'm gonna you can go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Mm, I always ask you, uh Am I offending you by asking you these questions? Because I want to understand. And you said, mm-hmm. you should understand that nothing you have requested offends me. I will say that if you want to reach out to folks like me, the greatest initial question would be to humbly ask, how are you feeling? And that starts a dialogue that is first focused on the impact before tuning attention to what to do about it. I won't go into that too much more here, but I would, and I would like to say and approach and recognize that the pain is not universally felt the same for the same reasons. And then you went on to talk about your family. As for my family, we are all experiencing it in a different way, but they are all negative. My son, who is 16, goes in and out of anger. He's appreciative and surprised at the safe, safe space he's found within the school community. 
my daughter who's 11 is the one who has least impacted by it, but she still wonders about how a person could do this to another person. And notice I said person and not police officer, because within our world, we have more jaundice eye when it comes to police officers, so she doesn't have the added burden of trying to reconcile how a police officer could do this. My wife and I are appalled not by the action, but by how brazen it actually was. However, my mom, who has dementia, had the most poignant reaction to it all. The first time it was on TV, she yelled for help. And as I was trying to calm her down, not exactly sure what she was upset about, she caught herself, paused, smiled, and said, Oh, I thought that was you. It's enough said. Eden, thank you so much for enlightening us. Shall we do this again? Yes, certainly. Thank you. I'm sorry we have the problems with the mic. and the, But other than that, I think it's a, the start of the right dialogue that needs to happen. Folks, let's not just hang in there. Let's really do something. And thanks, Mr. Eden Warner, for bringing us closer to uh, understanding so we can look outside our box and appreciate other boxes. Cheers, everyone. Thank you, Mr. Warner. Thank you so much. Take care.